Uh, tonight, I get to, obviously, I get to share with you uh, as Dave's out. Thanks, thanks. Uh, I was telling Chris earlier, it's always, it impresses me when you see people play multiple instruments because I can't fathom playing one, much less multiple. And I was joking with him earlier that if there's ever a song, I always feel weird if I'm in the front, there's ever a song where you're supposed to clap and sing, I have to choose. So it's like, don't think that I don't want to clap, it's just that I prefer to sing that day, or if I'm clapping and not singing, it's because it just doesn't go together. Just For some reason, that's not in my tools, but that's all right, I'm okay with that. I can either clap off beat or sing off key. Uh, either way, I try to do my best. But uh, when Dave asked me to, to, to preach, because he would be out, uh, one of the things that he wanted me to share with you is about um, the the church plant that my wife and I are starting in Copper's Cove, and it's through that where we get our message today, and, and why is the church necessary? Not just the church, what is, why is church necessary? And, and we, we take that today, and we understand that what is truth, and how we define truth is really going to determine how we live our lives, because we live in a society that questions if truth is even obtainable. Can we really find truth? And if we find it, and it is obtainable, who defines that truth? Who defines it? And then is that truth absolute? And it's those questions that we face today in our society, and that really the church has faced throughout its history, because when we claim as Christians that there is truth, it's an absolute truth. It's a sovereign truth. And that goes against our human nature. We want to define truth by ourselves. And really, we get this question. Uh, tonight, just a little side note, we're going to flip a little bit. Usually, we're used to staying in one place. We're going to flip around, so I thought I'd warn you on that. Uh, so it's almost going to feel like an old school Bible drill thing we're trying to find. But uh, don't worry, it's not that bad. But we get this title from John 18. And we're not going to turn there, don't worry, it's just a couple of verses we're going to read to set this up. But this, is, this comes from the conversation between Jesus and Pilate at his trial. And in his trial, which is actually, we sometimes forget that it was very judicial. We forget that Pilate was running the trial as a Roman. It was judicial. He was questioning. He was trying to get to the bottom of this. And Jesus had said that his kingdom wasn't of the world, and so that piqued Pilate's mind. Because all of a sudden, if he's a king, then there's a threat to Caesar. Then we might have a problem. So in verse 37, Pilate responds to Jesus, says, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And then he goes out and says that I find no guilt in him. Okay, so here we have the first example of truth being revealed. Jesus revealing what his mission was. And we have the first instance of someone misunderstanding that truth. This pilot completely missed it. He completely missed it because he was so focused on the judicial part of the trial that he missed what Jesus was saying. And so we'll find that although truth has been revealed to us, People still have the desire to define truth through our own comfort and in our own words. We want to, dec- we want to decide what truth is for ourselves. So 
Um, if y'all pause with me real quick, we'll pray, and then we'll get into this more. Father God, we thank you that you have given us truth, that, that you've given us this truth, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that, that brought that to us. Thank you for his life, his sacrifice, and God, we pray now that your spirit would give us power to understand. It would speak to us, would open your words to us and impart your wisdom and your truth into our lives. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. You see, we'll see tonight that truth has been revealed, and it's been revealed in different ways. The first is, truth is written. We all are reading Scripture. We're reading the truth. We're reading the Word. But the problem with that is that people say, well, that was 2,000 years ago when he lived. How do you know what you have is reliable? It's always the, the common thing. You don't know that that's right. It was written in Greek. If they're really smart, they say, oh, it was written in Greek. It's not English, so it's not the same. Well, what we do then is, is we have to look back and see what do we actually have from the originals. Is it, is it in fact, intact and reliable enough intact being so old that, that we can then translate it into other languages? And so when you do that, you're going to find that there's around... Now, the, the count always changes um, as new stuff is found and unearthed. There's around 5,800 original Greek manuscripts and fragments. There's not 5,800 New Testaments sitting there. There's just fragments. There's about that many, and that's just in the Greek. If you take all the other languages that was originally written in, and the first copies being, that there's some upwards to 20,000. These aren't all originals. They're all copies. We don't have an original copy left. The oldest we have, of those 5,800 in the Greek, there's 18 that date to the 2nd century. 18 that date to the 2nd century. And then there was one that was talked about last year. I don't think it's, all the information has been published yet. But there's supposedly a, a manuscript, a fragment of Mark that's going to be dated into the 1st century. Some 20 years after the original. So we can say that that's, that's pretty reliable. Interesting enough, the oldest one that we have is from John 18. It's the verses we just read. It is part of the oldest manuscript we actually have. It was 2nd century. It's estimated between 50 and 70 years past the original writing of John's Gospel. So he said, that's pretty good. It's, it's been 2,000 years. We're not original, but we have a pretty good date. But then we need to compare that with other documents. What do we have from there? The closest document of antiquity is Homer's Iliad. The closest that comes to being preserved is the New Testament is, and it has 600 copies, a little over 600 copies of it. But there's, the oldest one is three or 400 years after the original. So we can see the New Testament already has better than that. But then you can go further, and there's a, there's a, there's a composition of, it's Caesar's Gaelic Wars. It's the account of what happened in the wars in Gaul. It was written between 58 and 50 B.C. And this is considered an accurate account. This is what happened in those wars. People hold that to be true. There's ten copies of that. Ten copies and fragments of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And the oldest one we have was a copy from 900 years after that event. So we can see that it doesn't matter how close you are, because the New Testament is still disputed. Why is it disputed? It's because it's an absolute truth. We want to control 
the truth in our lives. And so we're going to find things in it, even though it's preserved far better than any other document that's considered accurate and true. We don't, we don't like that as humans. We want to change it. We want to control it. And yes, there's errors in it, but most of those, 99% of the errors, they say, are spelling, which I can relate to that. Well, I can't spell to save my life. I'd have been like on the C-team scribes. All right? they wouldn't, I would have been refilling the ink. It's like, don't even, don't even try to, to do that. But most of them are left out. Like, example, if you had a, a line that says, Lord, in ten copies it might be spelled right, and one copy it's, they leave the O out. Stuff like that. It doesn't change the meaning. You have a really good understanding of what it actually is. So, why does it matter? Why does it matter that it's been so preserved? It's because we can rely on its truth. We have the written truth. It's accurate as it was given to us originally in the first century and then now to us. And, and because we can rely on it, we can learn from it. If you will, turn to 2 Timothy. If you're using the little black Bible in front of you, it's page 996. And we're going to read a passage from Paul's second letter to Timothy where he's instructing Timothy on really what people are going to be like. We can say that people are, what people will be like absent of the truth. And in 2 Timothy 3 is where we're going to be. And we're going to read eight verses or so and look at what we can learn from the written truth about it. And in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. And if we skip down to verse 16, Paul reassures Timothy and says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may become competent, equipped for every good work. And so what we see there is, is really, that first part is a description, you could say, of people that their truth is defined in themselves. There's, there's no way you can have an absolute truth outside of yourself and make it on that list. If yourself is your truth, you're going to find yourself there. And we can say that it's pretty easy to see this list is accurate, even now. But, but the... But the confidence we have is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Because we can have confidence in this because it's profitable. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. You can use this. People will be like this. The truth is accurate. It's profitable. Don't shy away from it. Use it. Because really that's what people need. We need the absolute truth. And when we realize that the truth is absolute, even as it's written, we'll understand that that truth will separate us. It's going to divide people. James Montgomery Boyce was a pastor and theologian that died in uh, 2000, and he said it this way, without regular 
disciplined and practical study of the Bible, the church will always be secular. Secular meaning has no religious or spiritual basis. Is what he means by secular. The church will always be secular and fall into the state described by Paul when he warned that there will be terrible times. Those verses we just read, that list that we just read. And then he continues and says that it is that is the secular church, having the form of godliness but denying its power. On the other hand, by the means of the Bible, God's people will become the opposite. So we see that when we devote ourselves to the truth, we will be opposite of the secular, opposite of anything that doesn't have a religious or spiritual basis. The truth separates. It divides. But you see in that list, or in that that passage in 2 Timothy, that you see where he says that they're always learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. So, it's, it's possible then that we can take the words of Scripture and completely miss it. We can completely miss it. The, the devil quotes Scripture in Christ's temptation. We can say he doesn't believe. So just the written word by itself wouldn't have been enough because we would have changed it in our hearts. We would have changed that through our desires. So that brings us to the other way that truth is revealed. And it's within us. So we can see in 1 John that the truth, the Spirit of God is truth. And when in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the Spirit dwells within us. Our body is a temple of the Spirit. So we have the Spirit inside us, so therefore we have the truth inside us. We have the truth inside us. But, but sometimes that, that kind of rubs people the wrong way. We, we don't understand how it can just be inside us. And as I was thinking this week, I thought about my wife, Lindsay, and was thinking about how just when, when he had our, our first child, our son Keaton, she just knew how to be a mother. And granted, she had learned from her mother and from seeing other people, but there was something about her that it, she just knew how to do it. And if you're a mother, you understand that. It just, it just, you just know. And it baffles me. I don't, I'm so confused sometimes when something happens to one of our children and she knows exactly what to do. I'm like, how did you know that? Like, I want to be able to do that, but I don't, I don't have that motherly instinct just inside me. But she does. So why is it so hard for us to, to realize that the truth is within us? When we are in Christ, we have His Spirit. And His Spirit is within us. So the truth is in us. We can understand it. We can experience it. Be guided by it. Sinclair Ferguson is a pastor in South Carolina. Uh, I encourage you to listen to him. One, because he's good. And the other, is he's Scottish and it's easy to listen to. He has the accent. Keeps you engaged. Uh, he doesn't sound oddly Texan like I do. But uh, he, he, he compares Moses getting the law and the Spirit giving us the law. In his book, The Holy Spirit, he says, The revelation of God to Moses at Sinai had been accompanied by fire, wind, and divine tongue. Moses had ascended the mountain, and when he descended, he had in his possession the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And he says, Christ too had recently ascended. At Pentecost, he comes down, not with the law written on tablets of clay, but with the gift of his own spirit to write the law in the hearts of the believers. And by his power to enable them to fulfill the law's commands. Thus the new covenant promise begins to be fulfilled. You see, it's the same way. 
Moses went up, he ascended, and when he came back, he had the law. In the same way Christ ascended and then gave us the gift of His Spirit, not to, with a tangible law, but one that was implanted in us. But there's where you see the difference in the Gospel and the laws. The law exposed sin. The Gospel exposes and, and it shows that we're sinful, but yet provides the answer. Because the Spirit not only writes the law on our hearts and the truth in our hearts, but enables us to fulfill it. Enables us to live by the truth. So we see that the Spirit within us allows us to live by it. It opens the Word. And when you take the written truth with the Spirit within us, it comes to life. And you're able to live by it. And you're able to live through that Spirit. Turn real quick to Acts 1. There's an interesting part to the story of Pentecost that I think is worth mentioning. Is not only does the Spirit come to us, I think that it's interesting that when we first see the Spirit come at Pentecost, it happens in community. So we have all this talk that, that you can live the Christian life by yourself. That you can do it and go at it alone. But you see that the Spirit first comes in community. In Acts 1, that's page 909 in your black Bible, in verse 15 it says, they had just chosen the replacement for Judas. Christ had ascended, told them to wait, and they had just chosen Judas' replacement. And in verse 15 it says, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. And then in parentheses, most likely in parentheses, it says the company of persons wasn't all about 120. Okay, what you see there is a community. It's not just a group of people, it's a community. It has leadership, it's organized. Peter's standing up. There's something about Peter that, that sets him apart, but we see that they're in community. He told them to wait. They waited, but they organized themselves. They were in community. There's 120 of them. This is a valid community within that. And then if you flip over uh, to chapter 2, Verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This community, all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, it div- and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verse 5 and 6 is, is critical to what we do then as a church. It says, Now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What we see there is the truth going to the nations. The, the community came, the Spirit indwelled them, wrote the truth in their heart, the law in their heart, and then empowered them to speak it. This instance, literally in another language. People heard in their own language. The Spirit, like then, empowers us to take the truth to the nations. And that's what the mission is. We want people to understand that the truth is real. That there is a truth. And it's Absolute. So the Spirit, this truth within us, makes it understandable. 
We can understand that. It puts us in the background and allows us to understand truth. So if we're in Christ, we have the truth within us. It dwells in us. It rests in us. We have that written on our heart and it gives us the power to live. And we can talk about all this because of the third way that we saw truth as witness. Jesus Himself is our living truth. He came and He lived to show us what the truth is. We'll flip one more time to John chapter 1, page 886. This is the last place we'll be for this evening. But one thing that happens with Jesus, there's never really any argument about the fact that Jesus lived. It's who He actually was. Was He who He claimed He was? And most of you might be aware of the C.S. Lewis comment that He was either a lunatic or He was who He said. But He couldn't have been a good person. It was either crazy or He was divine, as He said. And so that's why we go to John. Because John's Gospel is a little different than the others. And he is focused on asserting Jesus' deity. He was fully human and He was fully God. And so in John 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. And if we skip down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that Jesus is our truth. He's full of grace and truth. He's absolute. And what Jesus did was when He came, you, I hear often in conversations, I teach high school also, so we always get interesting religious conversations going. Um, and you hear often that, that, oh, well, that was just to that culture. We're smarter now in the 21st century than they were then. So surely that doesn't apply to us. And what's interesting with that is Jesus wasn't going to that culture. He was creating an entirely new one. He created an entirely new culture, one that was based in love and grace, but it was based in His love and grace. And so if we have a culture that says it's about what we do or about what we can do, then it's not the truth. It's not the culture that Jesus brought us, that Jesus modeled, that He lived. Because that's what the truth is. The truth is all about Him. And sometimes we forget that the truth is the, the gospel. The truth is bad news before it's good news. Because it starts with that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all incapable of fixing ourselves. There's not one person for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And that's where the gospel starts. Because if we're not sinners, we're in need of no Savior. But instead, we are sinners. And the truth is that Jesus came that we were loved before the foundation of the world, and He came and lived the life that we're incapable of living. He fulfilled the law that we're incapable 
of fulfilling on our own. That He died the death that we deserve for us, in our place. And He rose again so that we might have life. And through His life, we have life. And then He ascended to high, or is at the right hand of the Father, until He comes again to claim His kingdom. So, that truth is the absolute. And it's also the truth the world doesn't like. So, if you've never heard the truth, let me be the first to tell you that we're sinners. But thanks be to God that you're loved. That Christ died for you. When you were unlovable, He loved you. And He died the death you needed. He has the sacrifice that the law required. And He rose again. So that we might live. So that you might live. And that's why we need the truth. Because without that truth, without that absolute truth that is the gospel, people are living in sin and dying the death that they deserve in sin. But there is truth. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. That's really, I mentioned that I'm a teacher. Isn't that always the question? I was that student. You know, what is this important for me? How does this matter? I was one of the famous ones that said, I'll never use math. You might not have been that way. I was that guy. You'll never use math, right? Why should we learn all that stuff? You never add letters in the real world. How does that work? But the same goes for this. Okay, so he came. So what? How does that affect me? How does that affect me? Because we forget to realize that when Jesus said, go and make disciples, that wasn't a claim to the pastors and the elders of the church. It was to the body. That's why it matters. It's because our lives are to be witnesses to the truth. We are to take the gospel wherever we go. Take the truth with us. And that's why we plant churches. That's why we have regular jobs and don't shy away from that. Because we're called to be witnesses to the truth. And that's, that's this, this concept of truth resonated with myself and Lindsay as we were trying to figure out planting a church. And we, when we thought about it, and then really this truth, when you, when, you're, when you come to the truth, there's a, there's a watershed moment. There's a moment where you're changed. The Spirit enables you. You choose life through the Spirit's power. And your life is changed. You go. Watershed geographically is simply the high point. That's where the water flows down to one or the other. One way or the other. But it's also, and our lives can be a point that we can go back to. It's a marker. It's a definite change in course. And that's why Lindsay and I are in the process of planning Watershed Church. It's because we believe that people need the truth. That the truth needs to be proclaimed. And not that Grace Bible is not doing it. We're here for a whole other reason. I'll explain in a second. But it's because we need more churches to reach more people. That's why we're planning a church on the west side of Copper's Cove. I can say the west side because if you've ever tried to make it through the thousand lights, there actually is another side to Cove. You can get there if the lights allow it. I guess the loop takes that illustration out. But you, if you 
if you've ever tried, it's, it can be challenging, but there is a west side of Copper's Cove. It does come to an end. And that's where we're planting Watershed Church because we fill it to people there. And that, the west side of Cove, in that area between Kempner and Cove, there's a ton of people there. It's growing like crazy. We feel that they need the truth. We feel like they need someone speaking the truth to them. And we feel that God is calling us to do that. And it's been a process probably four years in the making, three and a half years. And at first, if I'm honest, I was probably arrogant thinking that I could do it. Now, the further in this, I'm realizing that it's not near as easy as I perceive, but that's okay. So we're, we're planning watershed and we're in the process of doing that. And it's going to be based on three interactions with the truth, three interactions with the gospel that you see in every gospel center church. Grace Bible does all these things. We're not reinventing something. This is just how we're focusing. And the, and the first interaction is life. When you come in contact with the truth, it changes your life. It changes how you live. Because now you can realize that I was just undesirable to God as some of my neighbors are to me. Right? We all have neighbors. Some of them we don't like as much as others. But the gospel and the truth empowers us to see them differently. See them through grace and love and allow us to live lives. That's not saying that we have to be perfect. It's saying we have to be real. We have to be real people living in our context and yes, being able to give an answer, but simply just being real and understand. The opportunities to share the gospel will present themselves if we live life real where we are through the power of the truth in that changed life. And then with that, comes discipleship. And without discipleship, I don't believe you have a church. If people aren't teaching the generation under you, if you're not being taught by someone else, you don't have a church. You have to grow each other in the truth. When you first encounter the truth and you're first saved, you don't just automatically have everything downloaded. You have to grow in that knowledge. To grow in that truth. And we need people teaching each other. We need more mature Believers teaching less mature believers. And we never need to get to the point where we feel that we've arrived. We always need to be learning. And so that's the first interaction that we're basing Watershed on is just life. How does the gospel affect your life? We're going to do that through living purposely in community, but also through discipleship. And the next interaction that we think is vital to the truth is our worship. If you can hear the gospel... The truth, if you hear the truth that you were a sinner and Christ died for you and He rose again to give you life, your response is worship. There's no other response but praise to Him. And so we should live our lives in a state of worship because we're still sinners. When we're saved, it doesn't take sin away. It takes the penalty. We see God sees us in His righteousness. We still have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And so our worship should be the natural response, and it is the natural response to the truth. But also, we should realize that if we're living our lives through the power of the gospel, then when we come together corporately, like we are here now, that that there are going to be people that don't understand, that haven't encountered the truth. So our worship should be understandable as well. 
This shouldn't be something that people don't understand. But at the same time, it should remain reverent to Him. So we feel it's important to have God honoring worship yet understandable for those that haven't been saved by the truth yet. So that they might ask questions of why we do what we do. It should be understandable. And then finally, the third interaction is how does the gospel affect the world? What do we do with the gospel in relation to the world? It's that we go. Grace Bible does this very well. We go. You can see that now by the team in Guatemala. It's one way that we partner here. And at Watershed Church, as we get started, from the beginning, that's going to be in our DNA, is to go globally. Yes, help locally. Yes, preach the truth locally. Support local missions, even in the States, but also globally. We have to go physically and monetarily. And so, we want to see that what we have been given, we also pass on. Whether it's in the knowledge of the truth, whether it's monetary, that, that from the start we want that to be a part of Watershed Church's DNA. And understand that we're not planting a church because Grace Bible doesn't do those things. We're here because we applied for membership into an organization called Acts 29. It's a church planning organization that Dave is a part of and Grace Bible through that is a part of. And after we did the applications and the assessments and all that, which Dave was part of, uh, they said that it might be good for y'all to partner with Dave since we're close. And that's what we've been doing. That's why my wife and I are here. We start out going to the morning services and then we switch to the good team, the 5 o'clock service, right? Uh, but it's, it's simply to be trained and be poured into, but at the same time try to pour into you as well. We don't want to just suck everything from Grace Bible. We want to try to pour out while we're here. And as our time is ending, as we're getting closer and closer, about to have information meetings and, and actually get started as a new church, we want to continue to partner because we've learned a lot and we've been ministered to so well. But that's, that's where we are as far as my wife, Lindsay, and I planting our church on the west side of Cove. But really, the truth is vital no matter where you are. There is an absolute truth. And it has been revealed. And we're accountable for that. Father God, I thank you that your truth has been given to us. That we saw your son, that he was witnessed, that he lived a real life. That He came and while we were sinners, He died for us and He rose again so that we might have life through His life. And I thank You for that truth and just pray that Your Spirit, as it dwells inside of us, would give us power, enable us to be witnesses to that truth. Thank You that You loved us. That You've given us this gospel that we need so desperately. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're all called to be faithful everywhere we go. So go this week and be a witness to the truth. Y'all just.